0: episode 28. There are 28 phalanges when you count both your hands. In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Evgeny Malkin, perhaps the best player to initially be snubbed from the top 100 list, notched 28 points in the 2017 playoffs when the Pittsburgh Penguins won their last Stanley Cup, and 1928 was the last year of positive stock market returns in the roaring 20s. Beyond MD episode 28, here we go! Welcome back, everyone, to the Beyond MD podcast. It is great to be back. Had to take one extra week off as last weekend was the Physician Empowerment Live conference in Toronto, focusing on financial literacy for doctors. I had a wonderful time meeting new doctors from across the country, meeting the Physician Empowerment team in person, and also meeting my fellow presenters. It was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Lots of learning, many relationships formed. Now, in my last episode, you recall that Dr. Wing Lim mentioned, specialize, do not diversify. I'm going to take his advice, not necessarily with my investment approach, but with my creative outlets. What I've realized is that sometimes in life, you get the most impact, the most fulfillment when you put all your energy into one task, rather than dividing up all your energy and bandwidth into multiple tasks. So for me, I truly enjoy making the podcast. It's the best way for me to reach people, connect with people. When it comes to creativity, it is my true north. So I'm going to be dedicating essentially all my creative energy into the podcast. And that means less time and energy available for things like YouTube videos. For now, that's going to be the way. Later on, as things pick up, I can certainly envision more time for videos, but it's just a matter of time. So for today's episode, I'm really excited to host the one and only Amanda Doucette, who is also known as the Tax Chick. Today's episode is on estate planning 101. Now, this is a really interesting topic because I have noticed certain trends, especially for professionals, especially physicians, because the path to staff and finally working is a long and strenuous path. And once we become staff and once we begin earning, a lot of energy and focus goes towards wealth generation. And although we do think about rosy things in the future, we sometimes don't dedicate enough of our learning towards estate planning, and the inevitable, and preparing for that. So that's why I think this is a really important topic, and truth be told, I started these discussions in 2017-2018 early on when I became staff, but then it took a back seat because all my attention went into wealth creation. So now I'm really forcing myself to think long and hard about these topics, and I'm actively starting to pursue this once again. So my guest today is Amanda Doucette, who is a tax partner with Stevenson, Hood, Thornton, Bobier in Saskatoon. She helps her clients navigate the world of income tax, GST, and employment insurance. And she acts on behalf of taxpayers as they communicate with the CRA, up to and including appeals to the Tax Court of Canada. Amanda's main strength is taking complex topics and breaking them down into ways that are easy to understand so that her clients feel validated and motivated to take action. She also focuses on providing a collaborative approach to succession and estate planning, bringing together a variety of experts and to offer customized solutions for her clients. In 2020, Amanda launched the Tax Chick blog and the Tax Chick podcast. And guys, if you haven't checked out these resources, these are phenomenal and each are aimed at educating audiences about tax and estate planning issues and she has been selected by peers as a leading practitioner in the 2021 and 2022 edition of the Canadian Legal Expert and was awarded the Lawyer Monthly Woman in Law 2021 award in recognition of her legal expertise and contributions in the area of tax litigation. And with that, here's my interview with Amanda Doucette. Hey, Amanda, it's wonderful to finally connect with you. Where does the podcast find you today? Hey,
1: thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I am currently located in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Hey,
0: that's awesome. Amanda, so you're my first guest from Saskatchewan. So part of me with this podcast and the journey, I love to meet people from different parts of the country. So super excited to to have you. And Amanda, I want to just give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, and what you do.
1: Sure. So I am a tax lawyer and I am a partner at Stevenson Hood Thornton Beaubier in Saskatoon. And uh, I've been practicing law for, I guess, close to 15 years now. And I do a little bit of sort of two different things. I do a lot of transition planning with clients who are looking to succeed their business to the next generation. And I also do tax litigation work. So I help business owners who are audited, who are undergoing appeals to the Tax Court of Canada, and provide support to them um, throughout that process. And I believe that tax and tax issues are very fundamental and that everyone deserves to have this foundational knowledge about those issues and that it can be actually really fun to learn about. So a couple of years ago, um, I embarked on my own little journey. And so I started a podcast as well called the Tax Chick Podcast. And I have a blog called the Tax Chick Blog, uh, all meant to provide this foundational advice.
0: Amanda, that's awesome. And you know what? I do follow you on social media, on LinkedIn. And one thing from there is that I can tell you like tax, like you're really passionate about tax. And one thing I do enjoy from your posts is I think you do a really good job at talking about the everyday and kind of extracting lessons that we can all take from the everyday. So I think that's really valuable. I think you're doing a great job.
1: Oh, thanks so much.
0: So Amanda, you know, a lot of information to cover today, um, estate planning, estate planning, And my sense is I've come across some stats and what I understand is that there are many Canadians who do not have a will. And I can't speak for everybody but I can maybe speak on behalf of myself and and other people in the medical profession. So we tend to start earning later and when we start earning there's all this focus on wealth creation. And so we want to obviously focus on this and so it can be really hard to all of a sudden shift and think about, okay, what's going to happen when I die? What's going to happen to my estate, uh, the people in the next generation, my family. And so it can be really hard to, I think, just make that shift in mindset and force ourselves to actually think about it. But but it's important. So I want to get your sense on why do med- so many people not have an estate plan, not have a will. And, and do you notice any trends, maybe even with medical professionals?
1: So I think that there's there's definitely a commonality across the various professions because even in law school, I think a similar story to what you're describing where we go to school for so long and so all you have is debt and you aren't making anything. And so the the gut reaction is, well, I don't need to have a will because I don't own anything. Who wants to fight over my debt when I die? Like that's that's all I really have. And then by the time you get to the place where you have this income earning potential, you don't have time. Your life's too complicated. There's too much going on. Next thing you know, you're incorporating. Now you have a prof corp. Maybe now you're married. Now there's a spouse involved. You have rental properties. It's just, there's just too much. And there's never time. And so I think that's a very common thing that we see happen. What I noticed during the pandemic and- And it's not surprising, I guess. But at the time, I remember thinking, oh, this is interesting, is at the early part of the pandemic, there was a flood of medical professionals who had been delaying getting their estate planning done that all of a sudden were knocking down my door Mm -hmm. and saying this needs to happen now. And I think the sense of urgency that was created by really the atrocities of that time period and the unknown, I think there was, I mean, we still don't know anything, but at the time, we really didn't know anything, that it created this panic. And so I think that in a way was positive because a lot of estate planning got done with medical professionals and And a a lot of, a lot of those professionals had really good conversations with Mm. their family during that Mm -hmm. time that they otherwise would not have had because estate planning is not just making your will. It's, it's all about the conversations and the planning and, and having those discussions. So that's a trend that I've seen and, and it's still continuing. I'm still noticing way more medical professionals in my office than there was before.
0: That That's really good to hear. And I think that communication aspect, communicating with your family about the plan, that's really important, which we're going to get into. So the next thing I kind of want to know is, well, when should we start to think about creating the estate plan? Like, should it be a checkbox when we're buying that home? So once we bought the home, we bought that one depressing checkbox to think about, like, okay, what do <laughs> I need to think about when I die? Like, is that the time? would just love some guidance here.
1: No, that's a great question. I think that In reality, there's usually two times that people think about it, and this isn't necessarily when they're supposed to, but this is, I find, when people think about it. Um, The first time is that someone else has died, and they've somehow had to get involved uh, in the estate, and all of a sudden, they go into a flurry of panic because they see what can go wrong whenever they don't have their stuff in order, and Mm -hmm. then they phone. The second time people usually phone is they're going on a trip overseas, and uh, then all of a sudden, it's national panic. I'm getting on a plane. I'm probably going to die. I need my stay planning done. Um, of course, that ended during COVID, right? But although yeah. I've noticed like January to March of this year, all of a sudden, everyone's going on a hot holiday again. So they're all phoning yeah. me up. You know, I know we delayed this, Amanda, but it's time. It's time. So that typically is when people do it. Because I think we all respond to a deadline. We respond to an emergency. But when should we do it? Well, I think as soon as you turn 18, it's a great wow. thing to start thinking about. Okay. and. And estate planning is going to evolve over time and it becomes more complex over time. But when you're 18 and you don't own anything, I mean, in Saskatchewan, we have the ability to do something called a holograph will. And that's all in your own handwriting. It's signed and dated by you. And so I often have medical professionals who say, okay, we've got kids that are 16, 17, 18 years old. They don't really own anything yet, but they're starting to ask questions about what their estate plan should look like. So do they need to come in and, you know, get the Cadillac? And I said, well, no, why don't we start them with a holograph will here in Saskatchewan? They can do something that's, you know, appoints an executor, says where their stuff needs to go, and it just kind of clears that up. But it, it gets you thinking about the process. It gets you started. And I think then every like two years, you dust it off and you look at it. And as, each, as time goes by, it's going to become more complicated. Um, so I really think you should be starting super early. And my ultimate goal is that I have parents coming in to see me mm-hmm. who actually are going to start talking to their kids before their kids even turn 18. So it's just a natural thing to do. Okay. But at a minimum, if you're buying a house, if you have a child, yeah. um, entering a marriage, leaving a marriage, I mean, those kind of key life Um, decisions are great times to take a look at your estate planning
0: perfect I think that's really helpful guidance there and and Amanda maybe we can just talk a bit about some of the essential documents so uh, we can do this however you think is best fit I thought maybe going in chronological order so some of the documents we need to think about while we're alive the power of attorney Mm -hmm. and the healthcare directive so maybe maybe the power of attorney like what what exactly is that can you summarize that for us
1: Sure, sure. So I mean, when we talk about estate planning, if we kind of back up, I think a lot of people are misguided as to what that means. And so when they hear estate planning, the first thing people think is, oh yeah, my estate planning is done because I have a will. And then you ask, well, what about a power of attorney? What about a healthcare directive? And you get a blank look. So I think as a starting point, there are usually three key documents in an estate plan, Mm -hmm. the power of attorney, the healthcare Mm -hmm. directive, or the living will, and the will. And so we do want to talk about all three of those. And I like your concept of starting with kind of when you need them. <laughs> so the power of attorney, <laughs> let's start there. Yeah, um, A power of attorney is a document that governs who gets to make decisions about your property and your person while you are alive. Mm-hmm. As soon as you die, the power of attorney document dies with you mm-hmm. and we look to your will for guidance. Okay. So the person who's your power of attorney is, is a different role than the person who's your executor. Yep. But it might be the same person. It depends. Okay. okay. Now, in most provinces, um, you can have a power of attorney that covers property in person. Mm-hmm. And when I say property, I mean bank accounts, houses, land, finances, those kinds okay. of things. When I say person, I don't mean healthcare. I mean uh, what you're going to wear where you're going to live. It's like the person that contacts the care home. It's that piece. Different people can fill those roles. So I often have clients that come in and say, well, you know, my daughter Susan would be great on the personal side, but I don't want Susan running the finances. I want John running the finances. And so you can appoint different people. The, the role of the power of attorney is somewhat limited in that the power of attorney can only do what's in the document. Mm-hmm. And so we often see our power of attorney documents getting longer and longer and longer as we run across situations that pop up that we don't have provision for. Right. And a power of attorney is there to provide for the person. So if I give you my power of attorney, you can look after me not my husband, not my kids, yeah. okay. not the charities I benefit. And so you have to be very careful sometimes with including some clauses that if there are other dependent people right. um, in your life or other causes that you wish to benefit. And depending on which province that you live in, there are different rules over what a power of attorney has the actual power to do. In Saskatchewan, for example, if um, a power of attorney is going to be transferring land, mm-hmm. there's specific set of forms that have to be a part of the power of attorney, otherwise they can't do it. So So each province is a little bit different.
0: Amanda, one set of terms that I came across was there is a durable power of attorney and then a springing power of attorney. Can you just help me understand the difference between the two?
1: So I know in Saskatchewan we refer to it as like enduring and contingent, there's there's different phraseology yeah. that you can use. So a power of attorney, once it's signed, the starting point is it becomes effective immediately. So if I gave you my power of attorney and I don't put any other clauses in restricting your use, you could go to the bank and clean me out. That's kind of the idea. Um, when we have a power of attorney document that's labeled as enduring or uh, durable or continuing, that's typically a reference to the legislation and to the wording in the power of attorney legislation. And and this comes from... I mean the the history of powers of attorney and where they came from which was in the middle ages when men would go off to war and women couldn't own property they would give a power of attorney to a friend of theirs that was left behind and say hey can you look after you know my stuff make sure my wife and kids are okay when I come back I'm going to take it back from you and so the intention was that if the person died or got sick that it would sever that relationship cuz they'd come home from war and and we would deal with it separately of course in today's world we don't necessarily want the document to exist once or to be valid, I mean, until the person actually needs it. I don't want you to clean me out. I don't want you to have power over me until right. I can't speak for myself. Well, right. even then, I don't want you to clean me out. But right. I, you know, so this concept of if it's enduring, it means it endures past the point of incapacity. Okay. So, you know, that durable, enduring concept. Yeah. If it's a springing power of attorney or a contingent power of attorney, it doesn't come into effect until something has happened, like some event. And I mean, usually the event is on the opinion of a medical doctor that I can't, you know, I have no capacity to act on my own behalf or something like that. And then usually there's a person who declares whether that contingency has
0: been met. Okay, perfect. And, And then in terms of who we should be selecting as the power of attorney, I think if I look at one side, if I look at the healthcare directive, to me, it seems natural that it would probably be a family member that we trust who's going to be responsible for, okay, do we resuscitate? Do we not resuscitate? But then the power of attorney, I guess it could be family, but is it safe to say that it may be a good idea to have somebody in charge there who may have a bit more financial literacy? What are your thoughts there?
1: It really depends on the complexity of your situation. So, I mean, if you think about it, um, if you're, If you're the average medical professional, you have a prof corp, you have some investments, um, you might be running your own practice, you probably have some employees, Um, you'd want to look at somebody that could step into that and keep it running for you. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the idea. And so maybe it's another medical professional friend of yours. Like maybe you guys agree to swap, Mm -hmm. that you're each going to look after the property. Um, Or maybe your spouse knows enough Mm -hmm. that they can step in the shoes. Um, We often will have people appoint a trust company Mm -hmm. if they have a really complex estate. Uh, Trust companies, of course, will do that for a fee. Um, But what's cool about a trust company is there's this sort of – guaranteed like continuation of service so yeah you don't we're not worried about someone dying or something happening because there's always someone there they're totally objective so they're going to do exactly according to the letter of the law there's a lot of advantages there and so that's often done but there are restrictions and limits um, from a tax perspective when you have a trust company involved Mm -hmm. um, especially if you have a professional corporation so you have to be careful Um, you're likely getting access to the small business limit. You're likely a small business corporation. The trust company is not. They are a big, big entity. Um, And so they do not have access to the good tax rates. If they get to jump in and look after your stuff, they also step into your shoes as director and officer of your company, and they run your shares. It could actually prohibit you from getting the small business limit, and there's no exception to that in in lifetime. We have not seen CRA act on this yet. Okay. But I don't know. It, this doesn't happen in death. It only happens in this instance. So, you know, trust companies are an option. Friends are an option. Spouses are an option. It's really about the complexity of your stuff. And you want to have a conversation with whoever yeah. it is you've appointed and make sure that they're down with with doing that.
0: For sure. For sure. That That's really interesting about if a trust company comes into play, then potentially losing that small business deduction. I had no idea about that. But now the trust company and corporate trustee, is that synonymous?
1: Yeah. So the, the idea of the concept of a trustee is another word that's often used for executor, um, depending okay. on the legislation. Okay. And so if it's a corporate trustee, it's a trust company that's providing that service.
0: So maybe we can jump into wills, the, the, the living will, and then, and then beyond. So maybe Amanda, can you give us just an overview of what we need to know about wills, the types, the requirements?
1: Well, and sure, and I hate to backtrack or try to backlead on your podcast, but there's one other thing that I think is important about powers of attorney that I just want to leave people with. Please. Um, Powers of attorney are a critical document because there is no fallback legislation. So if you don't have a power of attorney, the only way for someone to be able to help you with your finances or your personhood if you end up in an incapacitated situation is a full-blown court application. It's expensive, it's costly, it's time-consuming. So by taking the step of making that document It's super important. And people often think, I'm young. I don't need one. I don't care. Make one. Um, Saves a lot of trouble in the back end. So that's my PSA on uh, on powers of attorney. Uh, Living wills, healthcare directives. So I mean, these are sometimes referred to as advanced healthcare directives, living wills. um, There's many different words for them. This is a focus on your healthcare decisions, things like the DNR order. Um, you know, how you're going to be looked after. We've seen some people in recent months who have wanted to include clauses on COVID. Um, If I get COVID and I'm in Mm -hmm. the hospital, here's how I want to be treated. uh, Those sorts of things. If you don't have a healthcare directive in place, almost every province has fallback legislation that says who gets to make decisions and how those decisions are made. Decisions are made in the best interests of the individual Typically, it's the spouse. If there's no spouse, it pops down to your kids as long as they're over 18, defaulting to the oldest. If you don't have any kids of that age, it usually goes up to your parents. If there's no parents, it goes to siblings. So I usually give that list to people and say, does any of those things make you cringe? If any of those things make you go, uh uh, that person is not making the decision for me, then that is a great reason to put your thoughts on paper. And this directive can Mm -hmm. have two different pieces to it. So one of the pieces is just like naming someone to make a decision. And that person's called your proxy in almost every province. But the other piece is you can actually set out some decisions yourself. Um, You know, listing out if I'm in this scenario, here's what you do. And so then we really only have to look to that proxy. If you haven't contemplated a specific situation that has now occurred, um, you can do both. You can do one. It, it's totally up to you um, as to as to what you choose to put in the document.
0: So, I guess in terms of will. So, when when we pass, let's say if we don't have a will, I, I know that what could happen could very well depend on what province you are in. There's going to be certain rules, but maybe just take us through the the worst case scenario. We pass away. We don't have a will. What happens?
1: So if you pass away without a will, or if you have a will that doesn't get rid of all your assets, which is also problematic, um, you'll die in what we call intestate. And almost every, well, every province in Canada has some form of legislation um, dealing with intestacy. There are some overview, like broad-reaching provisions that pretty much happen across the country. Uh But the specifics differ slightly. Um, But the big picture is usually um, there is some sort of preferential share that would go to a spouse, usually. The definition of spouse differs across provinces. And then usually there's a portion that would go to kids. Um, In different provinces, though, it depends on whether the kids are joint children of you and your spouse or not that for example in saskatchewan if they're not what they call common children um in that particular instance there's a different split so usually it's your spouse and kids there's then usually a provision that if you don't have spouse and kids again parents siblings there's an order of gifting that is set out gotcha but the problem is is if you do not have a will the process to get your stuff down this chain of command is slightly more complicated because you also don't have an executor. Right. Um, So you don't have anybody who stepped up and said, hey, I'm going to have to do this. So there's a court application. Somebody needs to come forward and say, fine, I'll gather up the assets. I'll gather up the debts. I'll deal with it. And then they have to distribute in accordance with the legislation. And there's a listing of people in each province that qualify um, to act in that role. So that if there's more than one person that's sort of chomping at the bit and wants to do it, there's some tiebreaker rules as to how the court can choose one over the other.
0: Maybe this is a good ch- time now then to get into topics like probate. So we, we hear about this term all the time. And I-, I just wanted to first understand what exactly is probate. And it sounds like this is a fee that that people will, will try to avoid. But Maybe you can just summarize it for us, Amanda. Like, even if we have a will, what I'm wondering is, are we still expected to, to pay some kind of probate fees? Maybe just talk us through what we need to, what we need to know.
1: So probate and what is probate is a wonderful question because I think everyone talks about it, but no one knows what it is. So let's break it down. Let's talk about it. So probate is the gold seal of approval by the court of your particular province. And the court is taking a big stamp. It literally is a seal. And they're saying, yes, this person has died. Yes, this is a valid will. Yes, executor, go forth and distribute assets. And in exchange for doing that, you pay a tax, a probate tax, essentially. It's a provincial form of tax. Mm-hmm. You pay it to the court for your province. And the fees differ across the country. Okay, And there's a lot of a lot of work that is done to avoid probate. And there's a lot of chatter in the universe about avoiding probate. And so I feel like I talk about this a lot. Um, I had a podcast episode on this a while ago, and we were talking about the difference between the little tax, which is the probate tax, right. and the big tax, um, which is the income tax. And nobody worries about the income tax, but everyone's worried about the probate tax. That's, and that's and <laughs> it, it's quite humorous to me because yeah. you're going to pay way more in income tax by yeah. some of the probate planning you're doing. So, I mean, I think what's annoying about probate is that it takes time, right? You have to gather stuff, you have to file documents. A lot of times people don't feel comfortable filing that themselves. So they want a professional to do it, which then costs money. I mean, each province has a tariff. So lawyers can't charge through the roof. We're all mandated as to what we're allowed to charge to file those things. But it just takes some time. Now probate fees differ across the country. Um, but They're very minimal in most places. Okay. Ontario, not so much. And so there's a lot of probate planning that happens. And there's even multiple wills that we see happen there where people put the assets that have to be probated in one will and the other assets in another will so that they can try to limit what they're paying probate fees on. Um, In Manitoba, probate fees are zero. In Alberta, uh, they're a flat rate. I think it's like $250. doesn't matter how much. Saskatchewan, we're at $7 for every $1,000 of assets. So... In in sort of those provinces, it makes no sense to probate plan unless you have like a $20 million oh, estate, sounds right? sounds like a very
0: nominal fee, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's Andrew very McRansky's? nominal. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: It's very nominal. Now, I mean, in terms of when you have to probate, it depends on the province. Okay. So, for example, Prince of Rhode Island. My family's from Prince of Rhode Island, which oh, is why I okay. know this random fact because yeah. I had to look into it when my grandparents passed away. Okay. But Prince of Rhode Island, it requires everyone to probate. Like, it doesn't huh. matter what you do. Everyone has to probate. There's just a different sort of scope of documents, um, depending on the nature of your assets. But in other provinces, like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, BC, you're only really probating if you fall into certain categories. So one of the categories is you have land, and the land's not jointly owned with the right of survivorship. Mm -hmm. Most land registry offices in Canada will not transfer land Unless there's a grant of probate, because they don't want to get sued later by some beneficiary who says that this wasn't a valid transfer. They want the protection of the court um, before they do that. So that's one example. Okay. So, of course, the probate planning is you add someone's name to title in order to avoid that. Which creates a whole new set of problems. But oh, that's yeah. the that's the way out of it. Okay. The other common time that you're seeing that this has to happen is when you have large amounts at financial institutions. Mm-hmm. And I, I shouldn't even say large amounts because frankly, a lot of the banks, it's like if you have 10 grand and over um, in a mix of all of your accounts, right. you you fall under the category. And again, the banks are worried because they don't want to start handing out money to people if they don't know that this is a valid will and if there's going to be a fight down the road. And so they're worried about their own liability. And I was at a conference a number of years ago and there was a panel of, of bank managers and financial advisors who said you know we just want to set the record straight we get so many complaints from lawyers who say what is wrong with you guys you have no authority to demand probate And they're like yes we do and (laughs) so they pulled up the bank act and sure enough there it is in the federal bank act and i went oh i'm never going to yell at a banker again like now i know they have the right to do this so they are legislatively allowed to require probate but There are ways around it. So they will often release funds if a release is given. They will often release funds to a lawyer's trust account. But banks are another place. Um, The other time, though, that you're going to want to probate is if you think there's going to be an issue with the estate. Because when you look across the country and you look at the potential challenges to a will, Mm -hmm. dependence relief, challenges to capacity, those kinds of things, they always start a clock that runs six months from the date that a grant of probate has happened. Okay. So if you don't get probate, the clock never starts. Oh, I see. And so then the question becomes, you know, as an executor, are you worried for like three years from now as to whether you're going to have a complaint? So you kind of have to weigh that. So even if you otherwise would not um, be probating, sometimes it's helpful to do that probate application just in case.
0: Okay. See, there's way more to probate than than I thought. <laughs> so that that was super super helpful. But um, okay, back to the banks. Um, I guess two things I learned from there don't don't mess with the banks, and the other thing <laughs> is what, what about what about having joint ownership? Like to me, if you had joint ownership of a bank account, to me that would be kind of like a seamless transition. But I guess there's maybe more to joint ownership than than there may seem at the surface. Can you talk about kind of I guess it can be a double-edged sword. I can think about a couple situations, but is joint ownership generally a good thing? What do we need to keep in mind?
1: Well, I'm really anti-joint ownership, oh, really? Um, hey. but I don't know if that's just a personal preference of mine. So I can talk to you about the pros and cons. So let's talk first about bank accounts because bank accounts are a separate piece from like joint ownership of land. Okay. Um, it's a different set of laws, a different set of rules. So um, joint ownership of bank accounts got brought up in the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't know like 10 years ago now. I think I was no, it must have been more than that. I was still in law school. It was a while ago. Um and there was a series of cases. And the gist of these cases was, you know, mom died. Before mom died, she had a couple of bank accounts. One had like a million dollars in it. One had like $20,000 in uh-huh. it. The account that had a million dollars in it, she had added one of her four kids to. Um in her will, she said she wanted her assets divided four ways between her four kids. Okay. She dies. The kid on the million dollar bank account says, woohoo, it's mine. The other three kids go, wait a minute, mom wanted this divided between all of us. And so there became this question of, is it an automatic survivorship with a bank account or is it it like a resulting trust or a presumptive trust, this idea that the one kid is really holding on to this for the benefit of the other three as well as themselves. And so there's a whole series of cases on this. And I think we see this all the time in practice. So what the court said is they said, well, it depends. It depends on the circumstances. And so they they really look for clarity in the bank documents, in mm-hmm. the will, mm-hmm. in the memos, in the evidence. And there's yeah. rarely clarity. That's usually the problem oh. where often the mom or dad will go to the bank and not even really realize what they're doing. Like they think they're just adding somebody on to help, right, to pay bills, to do things. And so they go to see the lawyer and they say, I have these bank accounts. I want to divide them. Yeah. And nobody asks the question. And, and you have to ask the question, well, how is the bank account owned? Did you sign anything at the bank? Because an joint account at the bank may not necessarily be a joint account with the right of survivorship. So if it is, then yeah, you avoid the probate. They're just going to give it to the survivor. But if, if a bank sees that it's not spouses, if they see it's a parent and a child, right. very rarely is the bank going to release that regardless of what type of account it is. They're going to ask some questions. So that's, that's the issue. And I don't blame them, right? Cause there's so much fights. So I mean, there's a lot of pros. There's a lot of cons that the pro is you could avoid probate. The pro is some simplicity and ease, right, with dealing with the money. The cons, though, is that if that asset is now somehow attached to this one kid, if that kid gets divorced, it becomes part of family property division if they get sued. um, Who reports the interest income? There's just so many questions, right?
0: Yeah, you know, that's a really good point, Amanda. And I was listening to one podcast recently on this, and I think the guest on the podcast was mark goodfield i think he's the author of the blunt bean counter blog which Mm. is a great blog that that's a great blog yes that that kind of got me started on my personal finance journey and so he was kind of talking about estate planning and thinking about it through basically there are horizontal factors within a generation and vertical factors from one generation to the next. So your point about, you know, whoever receives the bank account, well, what's their situation? Like, are they divorced? There's so many things to think about. So, I mean, I take everything you said there about how joint ownership, there can be issues. Now, what about beneficiary designations? Like one thing I've heard about is, for example, I'll take an RRSP for an example. And when we're signing up for an RRSP, usually, I think in most provinces, you get a chance to indicate who the beneficiary would be. Correct. But then down the road, if you indicate something else in a will, like, let's say you forgot 30 years ago, who you indicated that beneficiary would be, you indicate a different name in the will. What happens? Like who, who does, who go, who gets the RRSP?
1: So I don't know. Um, I used to know. But uh, there's been a bunch of case law that's been happening in, in our country in the last couple of years that has mm-hmm. just thrown a wrench into the mix on the concept of beneficiary designations. And Saskatchewan still hasn't weighed in, uh, but they haven't said no. So we don't know where it's going. Okay. The the initial thought had been, if you make a beneficiary designation at the bank, that is valid and binding, and you cannot change by will what you did on your original contracted document. Gotcha. However, when you look at the actual, like the law, I mean, making a testamentary disposition has certain requirements associated with it, which often are not met when you go to the bank and you sign a beneficiary designation. And so there's become some question of, well, is that even valid? Like, isn't Mm -hmm. it more valid if you put it in your will? So I think the most important thing is that there's consistency. Uh And so what I always say to people is your starting point for insurance for RSPs, for any sort of you know TFSAs, your starting point is your beneficiary should be the estate. Okay. Then you justify how to move off of that. And there are many circumstances where you would justify it.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: that should be your starting point. And, and why is that? Well, I mean, insurance proceeds are not taxable. So you're not worried about the tax consequence of an insurance proceed going to someone. But we often want to make sure that the insurance proceeds – match the purpose for why we got the insurance. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people that buy insurance to pay off a mortgage on a property, mm-hmm. but then they give the insurance over here and they leave the property over here. And there's there's a mismatch, right? Yeah. Um, with, with investments, um, especially with RRSPs, we see pickles all the time. Because, of course, when we die, we are deemed to dispose of everything we own the second before we die. It's like the biggest right. yard sale of your life. Yeah. And what the purpose of that is, is is it is it brings to bear all the tax that we've otherwise managed to avoid paying during our lifetime. Mostly tax on, on what we call capital properties, things that go up uh-huh. and down in value. Some of those are investments. Um, and so- we have to pay this tax, but there are ways out of doing that when we die. Right. And one of the ways out is if we give capital property to a spouse and spouse can be common law. It can be legally married spouse. So if you take an RRSP and you give it to a spouse, you, you defer or you push out that tax problem right. until your spouse has passed away. As long as the spouse does certain things with the RSP once they receive it. Right. But if you take the RSP and you give it to your kid, well, there's no tax deferral there. Right. There's nothing available to you. So your kid, as I understand it, the bank takes the RRSP, they cash it out, they give 100% to the kid, and your estate's left holding the bag with the tax. Right. This can be problematic when your residuary beneficiaries are not the same as the people getting the RRSP, because kid walks away with 100% of the RRSP, and the people left behind are paying the tax. And we see this often in like second marriages, uh-huh. um, where we have you know the second spouse is paying the tax on something that the kid is getting uh, which is never good and not the intention. So if you're putting in particular, you know, a kid on an RRSP, you know, why, why are you doing that? You're not getting any sort of tax rollover for that.
0: Um,
1: and, and how, who's paying the tax on that? Is that going to have some sort of implication?
0: Amanda, can we talk about the executor of the estate, uh, basically what their main responsibilities are? And maybe you can give us a checklist as to you know, what should we look for when we're picking that executor? And, you know, who knows, one day one of us may actually have to fulfill that role too. So I'd love to hear about this.
1: So when you're choosing an executor, I think the the automatic reaction of most of my clients is to pick like their oldest kid mm-hmm. or, or you get the, I want all three of them named because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Right. I've heard that one too. So when you're picking an executor, A, don't worry about hurting people's feelings. Uh, do not choose based on age. Yeah. Um, do do not try to sort of uh, choose based on the person maybe you like the most or something like that. What you right. want to do is you want to look at your asset base. Where are your assets? Are they all in Saskatchewan, for example, if you were dealing with me or are they mm-hmm. spread across the country? Mm-hmm. Do you have assets in multiple jurisdictions? Do you, I mean, do you have overseas property? Um, how complex is your estate? And then think about the list of people that you have in your life, whether those be you know business colleagues, friends, kids, um, siblings who would who would be able to do at least the same level of what you are currently doing mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean that the person who's acting as executor has to suddenly become the best financial advisor in Canada Because likely you have a financial advisor who can continue to provide support to the executor, but they need to generally like know about your stuff and know what to do and know how to communicate with the advisor. So you're thinking about someone that would have the same ability that you would to step into your shoes and deal with your stuff. You also want to think about location. Um, So there still is the requirement for the executor to do a lot of things in person. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, your executor lives in Montana, but you die in Saskatchewan, is that really the best option? Because right. I think that right. person's going to have to keep flying here to deal with stuff, right. which is going to be a pain in the behind. So, those are often some of the things to think about. You know, if you're appointing more than one person because you're trying to provide them with support, you then have to think well, are they working together? Are they working separately? Because if you require them to work together, then they both need to truck to every bank and everything, right? To sign totally. everything. Totally. And what if they disagree and now you have World War Three on your hands? Like there's so many issues, right? So those are some of the big picture things that I ask clients to think about.
0: And let's say an executor is picked, it's chosen. Um, then in terms of executor liability insurance, so I, I guess my understanding is that this is a product that essentially can protect the executor from from mistakes, is this something that is an essential tool what's what's your take
1: I'm really curious to see what happens with executor insurance because, I mean, there's all these new insurance products that come out. And yeah. when I first started as a lawyer, title insurance was brand new. Yeah. And everyone was like, ooh, title insurance, you don't need that. And now, like, everyone has it. And I feel like executor insurance is at the beginning phases of that. I don't yeah. know anyone personally who's ever purchased it. I always tell people there's only, like, one or two products that are really available in Canada. And yeah. like any insurance product, there's lots of exceptions and lots of things. I, I think that your protection as an executor kind comes from a getting the probate application because as long as you've got a grant of probate, no one can come after you personally um, for things. They they will fight it out with the estate and legal fees are paid through the estate. Um, in addition, I mean one of the big liabilities is tax, right? So the executor has an obligation to make sure all of the past tax returns have been filed and that all taxes have been paid. And once that's been done, they get a clearance certificate from Canada Revenue Agency, which gives them a big check mark and says, go forth and distribute. Um yeah. executors, as long as they're doing what the document says, you can't sue them for it. Right. So I think that needing to get insurance, I mean, sometimes it's to fund the legal fees. And so mm-hmm. sometimes if you the estate does not have a lot in it, that's a reason to do that. Cause if you think it's going to be contentious, but there's not a lot of value there, yeah, then maybe get the insurance. But it wouldn't be my first, it wouldn't be where I'd spend my money.
0: Amanda, can you give us a basic overview of how uh, the estate is taxed in Canada? And then maybe we can kind of go through a few different types of property and how Mm -hmm. those are specifically taxed after that.
1: Sure. So, I mean, Canada does not have an estate tax. They do not have a gift tax Mm -hmm. and they do not tax beneficiaries, which is markedly different from the US. Mm -hmm. So if you have dual citizenship or dual residency, if you have beneficiaries who are living in the US, there are a whole different set of requirements that you have to keep in mind in terms of taxation. But we're just going to deal with the, consider everybody to be in Canada, uh, no no ties to any other country. Um, so when you die, like we had talked about, immediately before your death, um, you're deemed to dispose of everything you own. And that's where the tax comes in. So the tax actually falls on the person who's died, not on the people that are receiving things. Right. And so there's typically a tax return that you're filing at that Mm -hmm. time that captures all of the tax. And and what are the different types of assets that would be taxable? Well, here's some examples. So think if you have a bank account. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have a bank account, that's cash. I mean, cash is cash. So the only thing that's going to be taxable in that bank account is interest earned on that cash, which is no different than your normal tax return. Yep. Then consider if you have like your house that you own. Well, we have a principal residence exemption in Canada. Right. And so as long as you're a Canadian resident, if you sell the home that is considered to be your principal residence, there is no tax to pay if the house goes up in value. Right. There is a form that needs to be filled out with your tax return. You must declare it, but there's no tax that has to be paid. And when you die, you are deemed to sell your interest in that property. So in your final tax return, you still have to kind of report that and make a note of it. Um, If you have other property, though, so if you own rental properties, apartment buildings, um, you know, farmland. So the starting point is those are capital properties. They go Uh up and down with value. And so what you're trying to determine is, is what the difference is. So we're looking for sort of two markers one is what we call adjusted cost base or ACB. Mm-hmm. Very simply put, this is usually what you originally purchased it for or received it at. There are many adjustments that can be made to that, but that's the very that's kind of the baseline, the rough and quick and dirty. The next number you're looking for is what the current fair market value is as of the time of death. Right. So you take the difference between those two numbers, half of that is taxable at a, whatever rate depending on your your so you're going to have to claim that. Now, the good news is that if your estate pays tax and, and ac- accepts that there's this increase in value, then when your beneficiary receives that asset, they receive it at the new high number. So if they turn around and sell it tomorrow, well, they don't, they don't have any tax to pay on it. Okay. So there are some advantages. It avoids double taxation. In Canada, we have exceptions for certain things because we're trying to, from a policy perspective, not tax Certain things. So one is we we really don't tax transfers between spouses. So on the first die, it's very rare for there to be a tax bill because most things are joint. Most things are going to the surviving spouse. Right. So we can defer almost all tax until the second spouse passes away. Okay. In addition, we have exceptions for farm property and fishing property in this country. Mm-hmm. So farm property can be shares in a farm corporation. Yep. It can be farm land. Yep. But just because you have land that's being farmed doesn't mean it's farm land. So there are certain tests that you have to meet. But if you fall into these certain categories, you may be able to further defer that tax. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Or you may be able to pull from a notional account called the uh, Lifetime Capital Gains Exemption, which you might hear about in the news. It's a notional account that each of us have um, that allows us to shelter gains and increase the cost base of our property. Again, certain requirements have to be met, but farm property is kind of its own little beast or fishing property um, for provinces that That, have fishing property. That's really
0: interesting. I had no idea. (laughs) Um, So, okay. So, and then some of the more common things like an RRSP, let's say... One passes away, then it would be kind of rolled over to the spouse, right? Tax deferred. But then when the spouse passes away, then goes to the next generation and then the estate pays the tax on that, right?
1: So it depends. So, I mean, if it goes to the spouse and then the spouse gets a new spouse and they give it to their new spouse... We could keep rolling it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, okay, that could sure. happen, right? right. Um, yeah. If they don't have a new spouse and if they either leave it to their estate or they leave it to somebody else, yeah, um, then what happens is the estate will pay the tax because there's there's that – it's, it's been broken. The contract's been broken. So if we think about buying an RRSP, we're usually buying it for terms, right? And if you try to take it out before the term happens, like bad things mm-hmm. happen, like you pay mm-hmm. a tax, it's the same thing. So you can't time when you die. So right, you're probably right. not going to die in accordance with the end of a term. So therefore, you've you've taken it out before you're supposed to, and the tax gets paid. And the only way to avoid it is to give it to a spouse.
0: Okay, perfect. And then just in contrast, life insurance, that's going to pay out tax-free, right, to the next generation or to the the to beneficiaries?
1: It depends. It depends on the type of life insurance. So if you think about sort of the life insurance policy that most of us know and kind of understand, it's the type of policy where you pay a premium every month and when you die, there's a death benefit of a million dollars, 500,000. Those types of policies are traditionally not taxable. The money just goes out to the next generation. You don't pay on it in your estate. The the people receiving Mm -hmm. it don't pay anything. Now, if they take that money and they invest it, and they make, you know, they earn interest on it. Yeah, they're going to pay tax on that, but not on the actual cash that they received. Okay. In contrast, though, there are some insurance policies that have an investment piece as part yes. of them. Yes. And so those are a different pickle. Um, and part of that can be taxable, um, again, depending on the nature of the insurance policy. So, what I always say to people is if you have an insurance advisor, if you have a financial advisor as part of the estate planning process, ask the question, what is the tax going to be on this, on this particular item when I die? And then they'll tell you, and then you can figure out where you're going to pay it from.
0: That's a whole other podcast episode. You're giving me great ideas, Amanda. So this is good. This is good. I have to ask this question though. So I have heard that of all these different types of assets we're talking about, and I'm wondering if you've discovered anything through your conversations with clients and their families, are there certain types of assets that people tend to prefer in general? Like do people want cash versus stocks in a portfolio? Do people want rental properties versus other things? Have you noticed anything?
1: You know, it's a very interesting question because I find it depends on the family. So yes. I was just working with a family the other day. There's two sons. Mm-hmm. The mom has shares in a corporation that's a very yeah. successful business. And she also owns some rental properties. And so we were having this discussion about, you know, the buckets available for the yeah. sons. I always talk about buckets and what are you putting in each person's yeah, bucket. And I
0: buckets too. And,
1: yeah. and the one son, I actually physically brought a picture of buckets because I felt like we needed that visual. And so the one son goes, I don't want anything to do with those rental properties. Like just really? sell them. I don't want to touch them. The other son's like, "No, you can't sell them. I want to run those things," and it was a very, it was a very interesting example because yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have fallen on the side of sell the dang things because I just don't, I'm not interested in rental properties. Interesting. So I think it depends where people's interests lie. Mm-hmm. Cash is king. Right? I mean, cash is always king. Yeah, yeah. But, I <laughs> but, you know, if you've got a business and your yeah. kids are a part of the business, yeah. well, all of a sudden now, if they have the entrepreneurial spirit, this idea of having shares in your business is way more attractive than cash. Um, or if they they maybe have an investment bone in their body that they're like, oh, this would be really cool to start working with, you know, some more complicated investments. They may right. want the investments directly. So I think the question you've asked is a good question because it it requires us to think a little bit about what we're doing. And oftentimes parents try to make decisions for their kids. So this particular parent had been agonizing for the last year and a half over how she was going to split these rental properties between the two boys. Well, we solved the problem in five seconds because the rental properties were worth about the same thing as her private corporation. So give the private corporation over here, give the rental properties over here, done. Like she didn't even have to stress about it because she didn't ask the kids. Interesting. So I think a family meeting is so important um, because you start to find out, well, what do the kids want? And and kids in this case was people in their 30s, right? What are they interested in? Because parents, you know, go into these weird contortions to try to get their estate <laughs> set up for their kids. And half the times the kids don't even care. Yeah. So why are you spending all this money yeah. and going through all this pain and your kids yeah. just want the money?
0: Yeah. Well, Amanda, I'm so happy you mentioned that because that segues into the final part of our chat today. So And I feel like, okay, when we're, one is creating a will, that's obviously a private document, but then I Mm -hmm. think a certain amount of planning has to take place too. And I think that's probably best done through communicating with your loved ones. I would imagine once they get to a certain age. So do you have any take on this? Like there's obviously a balance between privacy and planning. I just read an article on this today. What, what have you noticed? What's your advice on this matter?
1: So, Depending on how much you have communicated with your family throughout your lifetime, that often impacts how much you communicate with them about this. But I think as a starting point, Mm -hmm. I don't always suggest to parents that they go to their family and say, what would you like, right? Instead, usually our starting point for families that are very private is once the decisions have all been made, you call the family meeting and say, this is what I have decided. So it's not like we're asking for your input. It's Mm -hmm. by the way, and there doesn't need to be a dollar number. Mm-hmm. attached to anything. Okay. It can be very, very broad. It can be, here's my advisors. Here's where my will is. Here's generally the stuff I have, and here's who's getting what and why. And I might change my mind. Okay. It can be that simple. Okay. Um, for families though, that don't want to have, or, or that aren't quite as concerned about the same level of privacy, yeah. there's differing levels of conversations that can happen. And so again, we never have to put a number in front of anything right? But if the parents are really struggling, like my client was that I was talking to you about and just don't know what to do, we can haul everybody in a room together and we can talk buckets without talking numbers. I mean, the kids in this case have no idea what the numbers are. Um, It could have been properties worth a hundred thousand. They don't know. It wasn't, but they don't know that. So, I mean, you can have those conversations and find out what people's interests are without giving too much information.
0: Amanda, this one is a big one. So, you know, I think there's a lot of moving parts to estate planning, it can get really complicated. And I see ads all the time for, hey, you know what, you can sign up online, do it yourself. And on one on one side, I'm happy to see this happening, because they're encouraging us to think about this. But I have to say, like, for somebody who's got, I don't know, their home, like a couple rental properties, multiple investment accounts, like that, to me already seems daunting enough to do it by yourself. So maybe you can kind of address this, what are the pros and cons of DIY estate planning and just things to think about.
1: So, I mean, we face this all the time as yeah. estate planners, as lawyers, yeah. I get people that say, well, it's yeah. just a will. Why are you charging me so much money? And, and I, I feel like until you've been burned, you don't really realize the value of what you're putting out. But, um, I think that if you own anything more than just like a house and have T4 income, yeah. a do it yourself is pretty scary because you're probably going to do something wrong. And I mean, we've hit on some some big topics here today, mm-hmm. but there's so many things that can kind of go south, right? So I think that when you're looking for someone to help you with mm-hmm. your estate planning, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to ask what the fees are up front. Okay. Um, and don't be afraid to ask what that covers because everyone has different fees. Mm-hmm. But a lot of lawyers do charge more of a flat rate fee. Um, that's usually um, a, a range depending on the complexity of the will. And be open to to what your asset base is. So I can't tell you how many times I've had a client phone me and say, I have a really simple estate. I'm like, okay. And we start talking and, oh, they've got a house in, in Mexico and this is a second marriage. And, oh, they have this (laughs) secret grandchild. I'm like, no, this is not a simple estate. Yeah. Um, so I think you you have to be open about that, but I think you need to start making your advisory team work for you. So as you get more complicated, and I think if we look at medical professionals, for example, so you start out, you just have debt, you don't really have anything. Then maybe you get married, maybe you buy a house. Now all of a sudden you've incorporated a prof corp, you have your own practice. Now you have investments. Maybe you have rental properties. Like it creeps up on you. Well, you've likely also collected advisors along the way. You probably have an accountant. You probably have a financial advisor. You Mm -hmm. might have an insurance advisor. Mm -hmm. Heck, you might have had to have a lawyer because you might have needed someone to incorporate. Well, it doesn't hurt to to kind of gather the team. At least gather them once mm-hmm. and find out what it's going to cost and just have a big picture discussion. Because once you do it right the first time, then you're just updating. And if all your advisors know what the issues are, then it doesn't matter who you go to, they can flag stuff for you. And yeah, yeah. so that upfront cost is helpful. The do-it-yourself um, kits, I mean, they're fine, but you have to be careful that you're still fitting within the requirements of yep. the legislation. So what we see happen a lot in Saskatchewan is – I know Staples used to sell these ones, and it was like Mad Libs, right? Like you hand wrote into the blanks, and then you just sign the bottom of it, and that wasn't a valid will. So the problem is, is it it didn't have the formal requirements of two witnesses, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't all in your own handwriting, so it wasn't a holograph will. And so there's some case law where the courts have basically just taken the handwritten portion and put that onto a separate piece of paper and said, is there enough here that we can use? And usually there isn't. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, thinking you're saving money by spending 50 bucks on that kind of a document, you may actually cost yourself a whole bunch down the road. Right. So just make sure you know what the formalities are. I mean, most provinces in Canada have um, some form of legal education association that is um, that is the government has sponsored. So in Saskatchewan, we have PLEA, P-L-E-A, P-L-E-A.org. Yep. Um, Lots of information available on their website that's good legal information. There's a new national campaign called Willpower, uh, willpower.org. Um, fabulous. It's a group of estate planners across this country who are trying to improve co- discussions about estate planning and philanthropy. Tons of wonderful free information on that site. So if you want to try to do it yourself, try to get some access to some good information. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'm not just trying to make myself money here. I really think you got to go see a lawyer if you have any level of complexity to your estate because... They're going to flag things for you so that you put that money out. And then as you go through life, you will make better proactive decisions because you'll know what the
0: plan is. No, I I think that's really reasonable. And Amanda, last question. So if we decide that, yes, we want to go see an estate lawyer to help us just set ourselves up and the following generation up for success, what kinds of questions should we be asking? What should we be looking for?
1: Well, I think the thing that most people ask is fees right away. That's usually the big, kind of, what's this going to cost me? Yep. But sort of like when you're trying to hire a plumber or an electrician, you don't necessarily want to go with the person that's going to charge you the least amount of money. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the best suited for you. Right. So you want someone that you can see has some sort of specialty in the area. And in Canada, we're not allowed to say that we specialize in certain things. Our law societies prohibit that. But you'll see from the bios and from information that this is a person who does a lot of this area. So for example, like you would not hire me for a criminal case. I am not a criminal lawyer. You do not want me going to provincial court for you. Um. So, but a criminal lawyer might not be the best person to hire for estate planning. So you do want to find someone in a specialty. Yep. There are different um, certifications and programs that people have taken, which mm-hmm. kind of show you that they do have a bit more education in the area. So there in Canada, we have the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners. It is a designation, a TEP designation. And if you have that, you've had to get certification at a higher level from a governing body. And so that will show that that person has expertise. If you have cross-border issues, multi-jurisdictional issues, Mm -hmm. complex trust planning, you want someone who's got designations like that because they will understand what you need. Um, And then ask your friends and family. You know, I mean, referrals are one of the greatest ways to find a professional because you also want someone that you like. I mean, you're talking to them about the ugly stuff in your life. You hear all kinds of stuff as an estate planner and you're working with people through very difficult things and nobody wants to do this. Like nobody wants to talk about death. And so you do want to find somebody that you don't groan at the thought of having a conversation with them. So picking up the phone and chatting with a person and saying, you know, do I still like this person is actually a really valid thing to consider.
0: Amanda, I think that's great uh, information to think about. So that basically wraps it up. And I just want to thank you, Amanda, for coming on uh, my podcast. And I I have to say, once I discovered what you were doing with the Tax Chick podcast, and I started to read a few of your blogs, I actually, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while. So I'm really happy we were able to sort this out today. And I just want to thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a great chat.
0: Okay, take care. Oh my goodness, it's probably going to take me five listens to absorb all the information in that episode. Lots of wisdom from Amanda Doucette. So if you like that episode, please feel free to share with your network. Reach out to me, Amanda. You can feel free to tag us and give the episode a review. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And by the way, I have put links to Amanda's social media, her podcast, and her blog in the show notes. Feel free to check out the amazing content that she is putting out and to everybody listening, thank you so much for your ongoing support. It really means the world to me. I mean it when I say this, but the greatest thing that has come from this podcast is the chance to connect with my colleagues across the country. This is something I'm going to cherish forever. So continue to reach out to me, LinkedIn, beyondmdpodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. See you in about three weeks time. And until then, stay well and stay savvy.